How does the nuclear reactor work? What? It's a simple question. It's hardly a simple answer. Of course. You presume I'm too stupid to understand. So I'll restate. Tell me how a nuclear reactor works or I'll have one of these soldiers throw you out of the helicopter. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 250 for the week of May 6, 2019. I am Graphite Palmer, David T. Cole, and I'm here with Refusenik, Sarah D. Bunting. Your mom can check the core, comrade. Iodine pill hoarder, Tari Ariano. I don't have it to spare. And inexpensive dosimeter, Adam Sternberg. See, the thing is, I only go up to three points that's Ronkin. <laughs> Welcome to episode 250. Good Lord of Extra Hot Great. Joining us is our dear friend, Adam Sternberg. Hello, Adam. Hello. 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 Adam. Yay! Adam, I saw you tweet this uh, yesterday that this was one of the best things that you've seen on TV. Give us your high-level observations. What is it about Chernobyl that you think makes it so special? Well, I really loved it, and I went into it with a sort of strange trepidation because the guy who wrote it, Craig Mazin, is the co-host of a podcast that I've been listening to for years and years called Script Notes. It's a screenwriting podcast that he co-hosts with this uh, other screenwriter, John August. And so he's sort of been alluding to this process of making this series, and I know it's something he's very invested in. And so I started watching the first episode sort of thinking, oh, no, what if it's terrible? Um but it wasn't terrible. And I had actually a few – there was a few funny moments at the beginning where I thought it could kind of go either way. But I I really admired it. I thought it was an extraordinarily um, moving and intelligently uh, organized account of this event, which I certainly like know a little bit about but don't know nearly as much as the series sort of shares with you. Yeah, we're all old enough to vaguely have memories of this event happening when we were alive, I would say. Yeah, and I remember it. I, I was just reminded um, recently that it happened the same year and within three months of the Challenger explosion. So I think if you lived in the Western world, it really wasn't like the first thing on your mind. You sort of heard that this thing had happened. And um, I, I thought the acting was great. I thought the cast was fantastic. Uh, I, I, there's a certain kind of European actor who, when they come on screen, I just start to relax and just feel like I'm in very <laughs> good hands with them. Um, and, you know, I admired how well it was pulled off given a pretty high degree of difficulty to not only tell this true story of this sort of complicated event, but to tell it in a dramatic way. And and also, you know, to take us into a world that a lot of us are not familiar with, this sort of Soviet era Russia with characters with names that are hard to remember and, you know, uh, uh, a sort of after effect of the disaster, which is both dramatic, but also sort of inherently undramatic because it's a lot of people who are sort of eventually going to get thyroid cancer. Um, and I found it totally gripping. I, you know, some people have compared it to a horror movie, especially the first two episodes. And, and I think that's totally true and kind of the best kind of horror movie. And the fact that 
it's all true and that the uh, that series has taken great pains to depict it as accurately as possible. I just found it really, really affecting. I tore through the five episodes. It's funny you say that uh, it was a horror movie because for me, what it reminded me of was the horrific 1970s submarine movies, which I watched as a child and was sort of scarred by because it shares a lot like power plant is the submarine. It is going down and you have to send men to their deaths to shut off water valves and contain this element, but it's a one-way trip because the water will drown you or the radiation will get you. Movies like Das Boot and Grey Lady Down when I was 5 to 10 or so, like those moments where you send men to their doom, it's like, oh shit, that, that guy just, <laughs> he's he died because he has to hold on to that valve or whatever. And it was like a horror show to a person that young, but it 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 did have that quality for sure. I mean, I should say that the series, I realized very early on that it has a lot of elements that I'm naturally inclined to uh, respond positively to. Um, I always enjoy stories of bureaucratic malfeasance. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I find airborne contaminants particularly creepy. Um, and just the whole look of the show, the Soviet-era brutalist architecture, the yeah. bad 80s suits and the mustaches and everyone smoking and the the – control room of the reactor with the the dials and switches and that sort of like classic 1980s sci-fi look all the modern technology still being made with bakelite <laughs> yeah, exactly um i i i i was all in in about 10 minutes and i have to say like the second episode in particular which i know hasn't aired yet there were scenes in there that i found so moving and you know difficult to watch but um I thought the whole thing was kind of impeccably crafted. I'm going to guess that some of you don't agree. Well, let's turn it over to Sarah first. She, she loves a process story. How did this scratch your itch in that respect, Sarah? Um, first of all, I would like to note that Craig Mazin was also um, a survivor of rooming with Ted Cruz at Princeton. Sure. Um, and uh, we all appreciate his talk about a mission of uh, a mission of doom. No suit out alive. Um, I'm sure it will not surprise Tara to learn that I thought there was a little too much barfing. Like, I, I understand yeah. this is a symptom, but after the first five upchucks, like, we start with barfing of, like, civilians. Like, Craig, please, help me help you. Um, I, this is a cast that I really like. Uh, I, I agree that the look of the production was amazing. Um, I, I just... There is something about the initial um, like inciting event of a like disaster movie like the, which this basically is. It's just, you know, long that there's something impatience making to me about it, especially when it's real life events that I, I just felt kind of like they weren't necessarily doing anything that I didn't expect. Um, it, it's good. It's interesting, but it's not quite good enough and it's not quite compelling enough for me to keep going, even though I really like this cast. I don't know that so much about the event that I thought this was dull, but I did get like waylaid by looking up stuff about the exclusion zone and um, like you know, botanical and orthographic studies that they've done of it and like wildlife that's coming back to it and continuing problems with squatters in it and that they like made up a whole word, which is 28 letters long that I'm not even going to attempt. 
<laughs> for these people who just refuse to leave and they're like senior citizens. And finally the, the Ukraine government was just like, all right, like we, we tried to tell you, I think I also saw a short film. Um, one of those years when I was doing the Oscars death race about like this like sort of group of kids who were doing some geocaching game in the exclusion zone. One of them got stuck in there and, I was sort of fascinated by like world's post people, but that was all like, I'm down a wiki hole. I'm not paying attention to the show. So this just felt like a little bit too high fiber for me to necessarily keep going with that said, if my husband's like, we should marathon this like in a few months on a rainy day, I will be here for it. I didn't mm -hmm. dislike it. It's just not quite my jam. See, I, I didn't uh, high fiber was the opposite of how I felt about it. I thought it was kind of corny, um, starting out with like in the first episode, we get the the Jared Harris character. I'm sorry, I don't know anyone's names, but he's he's a nuclear um, engineer who's remember looking back on his part in trying to contain the disaster and and putting blame on the you know people that he thinks are responsible and stuff. And so he's recording this on a tape recorder. It's like super expository. Mm. We get a shot of like his bloodstained hanky on the table and then he hangs himself. It's like, oh okay. and abandons like, his cat. Come on, man. His poor cat. <laughs> oh you have you got I don't know if, if I don't know if anyone's watched all five episodes, but if um uh cat abandonment or other forms of uh, animal cruelty yeah. are disturbing to you there is like a major 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 trigger warning episode uh coming up yep yeah because we of what they had to do with all the animals that were in the exclusion zone right not I'm feed them i just thought there were a lot of moments where it was getting a little on the soapy end of the spectrum the soundtrack the score i thought in particular was doing a lot of work to build dread that the events should be sufficient to do like, you know, at the end of the first episode, we see kids trooping off to school and they're in their uniforms and stuff. And it's like thrum, thrum, thrum. And then a bird falls mm, out of the sky. Yeah, like that. That was... I'm just thinking like that would be so much more powerful if it wasn't being goosed so much with this, with this score. I don't know. I, I mean, and I also thought, there's there's a timelessness to a story like this in the sense of like no one is ever going to learn the right lessons from a disaster like this like you know looking ahead 25 years to Deepwater Horizon for example like obviously not the same thing but the same in a similar kind of scale of like no one has any idea how to possibly contain this how bad it actually is what the effects are going to be you know and and even 25 years later like you know, the September 11th attacks, like sending first responders in without the right safety equipment. Like we watch this and think it's horrible that these firefighters like don't even have masks on. Never mind, like hazmat suits or anything that potentially even would be a fig leaf on trying to, you know, maintain their health. But I don't know. I felt like it was tr it was taking a very superior attitude toward it because this is in the Soviet Union and like some really there's no other word for it. Corny elements like, you know, the the meeting of the, the of the committee where an old man with a fucking cane has to like tap the cane and then stand up, you know, wave off help and give this whole speech about how we believe in Soviet socialism, blah, blah, blah. Like I just it felt um, 
it felt pointed in the wrong ways to me sometimes. Let's I'll, I'll put it that way. I hear what you're saying, Tara, and I, I, you know, I mentioned that I had like a little bit of trepidation right at the beginning because that opening scene where he hangs himself, yeah, is such a familiar kind of scene from a certain kind of movie where the guy puts on his dress military uniform and like, uh-huh. adjusts mm-hmm. the picture of his wife and kids, and yeah. then you know you hear the shot and the blood like splatters across the picture or yes. the bed spread yep. or whatever, and so I was a little bit nervous there. I, I, but then. I, a scene that came right after that kind of restored my confidence was where we actually see the explosion, which happens way far off in the distance. We're in the apartment of the firefighter and his wife, and she's just mm-hmm. woke up. And you just see it really far off, and it reminded me of one of my all-time favorite moments that gives me goosebumps um, in that in the movie United 93, where the first where you see the plane hit the tower, but it's from the control tower's point of view. So it's so far off in the distance. They're all arguing about the fact that there's this plane that's kind of gone off the radar. And then all of a sudden you just see the plane kind of drift into the picture and hit the building and it explodes. And I, I felt like more often than not, the show managed to handle those kind of moments very deftly. I do agree that there were a couple of moments, especially early on, like the old man with the cane, like the scene with Legasov, who's Jared Harris, the the physicist, at the at the uh, big council meeting where they're all sort of saying, "Well, nothing to see here. Let's all go." And you know he's going to interrupt it, like you know what's coming, but he yeah. kind of pounds the table and they all mm-hmm. stop. And you know there were moments where I felt like it was it was overplaying its hand, but I felt like there were so many other moments where it kind of underplayed it. And um, there's a moment I think it's in the first or the second episode i can't remember now but it's not a spoiler really but where where shabina which is um the stellan skarsgård character is is on the phone and he's he's reporting to lagasov about how all the other countries in europe are on alert now and how in frankfurt they're not allowing their kids to go out into the streets and then he looks down and he's like frankfurt is however many kilometers away and then he looks out the window and then you see these kids in propyat in that actual town that's three mm-hmm. kilometers from Chernobyl, like outside. And I don't know, there was so, there were a lot of moments that I found very affecting. It's a little bit like a, obviously a sort of personal taste thing, but, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's such an interesting question when you're talking about a, a huge disaster like this, because you're kind of like, can you really overplay it in a way? And I guess as yeah. a viewer, if it's taking you out of the story, then you've overplayed it. But, um, I actually found on balance that that they they kept that kind of thing in check. I do recognize that when you're dealing with institutional things like all the committees of of the Soviet structure and how a lot of this movie is about the disaster, but a lot of this movie is about the death of Stalin-esque, you know, not (laughs) not you're not compelled to solve a problem you're compelled to not get blamed for a problem and all the harm that does to good science you know because good science is not necessarily what you need you need somebody to blame rather than getting it done in that sort of environment and the bureaucracy of it all and sort of the the blame game of it seems very familiar but to see it sort of operate at this scale with such stakes, I thought was actually quite effective. Like the the guy with the magnificent head of hair who sort of calls all the meetings. Don O'Neill of Bedrooms and Hallways. <laughs> yeah. What a fantastic yeah. voice. Um, he is great. I love him in this, uh, fant- in this I always love him. And I find that stuff interesting um, as part of the process. And I do feel like there's enough 
elements at play in this miniseries. You have the political aspects. You have boots on the ground of all the workers, both in the plants and ones that are called to deal with it. You have uh, the people of the surrounding town represented by the firefighter and the firefighter's wife. You have all the first responders. Like there's a lot of of scene shifting as they deal with all the various things that are going on with the potential meltdown at Chernobyl. And I felt like it moved enough that it kept my interest. I didn't feel like any one of those elements was fantastic, but as a whole, I felt it very entertaining as a show this bleak can be, you know, like it, it, it held my attention. I will say, too, uh, just as a side note, there is this podcast that they're doing with Craig Mazin and Peter Seagal from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, and they release an episode of the podcast with each episode of the miniseries. And they talk specifically and I think pretty candidly about you know which parts are fictionalized, which parts are real, what actually happened. You know, the fact that that guy Legasov, who we were just talking about that scene where he commits suicide, well, he did actually commit suicide. He hung himself on the second anniversary of Chernobyl. Um, but it was, it's really good for me because I always watch these things. I remember watching quiz show back in the day and just being like, like, I'm always distracted by this voice in my head. That's like, wait, is that, is that true though? Like, did that really happen that way or how did this? And so if that is the kind of thing you're interested in, the podcast is very good at going through almost scene by scene and saying like, yes, this happened. Like, for example, that old man with the cane is, is not based on a real person, but it was an argument that happened at that meeting and so on and stuff like that. So um, that podcast exists. and I think it's an, actually a really great idea to do something like that as a companion to a show like this. Yeah, Catherine Van Narendonk, past guest of the show, was tweeting about that last night. She she watched the episode under duress. I gather her husband is a scientist, so this was something he was interested in. And she was like, this is not for me, but OK, and just kept getting more and more and more upset to the point where I had to make sure to tweet at her if if episode one was that upsetting in terms of its portrayal of human suffering. Like, do not watch episode three because it gets worse. Holy yeah. shit. With a firefighter in bed. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think at this point we do have to give a round of vomit applause for the special effects makeup people because <laughs> I've never Ooh. seen such mastery of the weepy skin sores application <gasps> in a Hollywood uh. production before because it was real gross. Uh, <laughs> and it starts off with radiation burns. And as the days and hours go on, they get worse and worse. And there is only one person they don't show and they show some pretty gruesome stuff. But the one they don't show is this guy who one character remarks later, his face just wasn't there anymore. It's like, OK, I'm kind of glad that was a uh, talk, don't show moment. Um, but yeah, the, the makeup was disgustingly uh, well done. I'll give a shout out to my favorite episode, uh, my favorite moment in episode three, other than the extremely upsetting uh, guy in the bed, which I alluded to. But um, when Lagasov confronts the head of the KGB about the tales that are have been put on him and Stellan Skarsgård, who's like the government guy that's sort of working with him and and is basically like just is super aggressive considering it's the head of the KGB. And he gets this sort of song and dance speech about like, well, people are following you, but people are following me, too. The KGB is a circle of accountability, which great, great line. Um, but at the same time, at the end of it, that, you know, Stellan Skarsgård is like, well, that probably worked because he just thought you were a naive idiot that didn't know any better. Like he just he he didn't think you were being aggressive. He just thought you you had no idea what you were actually asking and who you were asking it of. And I would just say the lesson to me of that is like in a moment of crisis where 
and crisis can take many forms. Like that's how you should act. Just just push forward because there might not be a day where of reckoning, and you might as well just push your luck as far as you think it can go. Because in a crisis, someone needs to be bold, and I, I liked that moment. I thought it was good. Jer- the acting is great, although I I do think it's weird. Everyone seems to be using their real natural accents, except yeah. for Stellan Skarsgård and Emily Morton, for some reason, decided to do like faint Russian accents, kind of. But everyone else is just British. Yeah, that took me a little while to get used to. And I know it's um, a thing that has come up in other, you know, in uh, Hunt for Red October, that famous shot where they kind of go into Sean Connery's mouth and then come back out again. And he's talking like Sean Connery again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, that to me was... A little distracting at the beginning, but I kind of understand that it's sort of the best solution to a difficult problem because – and they actually talk about this a little bit on the podcast, like why they decided to do that. You, you know, you if you ask everyone to do a Russian accent, that just is very equally distracting and weird. For sure. Um, and I did wonder the extent to which they cast the actors with sort of the UK equivalent of the kind of character they were playing. Cause like oh, like the, guy the class the, class markers. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like the head of the miners, who's a great character, right? But he's got this kind of great British accent. And then, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it, it's just something you kind of have to. For me, it was a little distracting at the beginning, but then I just sort of went with it. And it was fun. oh, no, the opposite. I, I think if in something like this, everyone should just use their regular accents, like, you know, the, the, the Milos Forman Amadeus principle of like just do <laughs> yes. whatever. Yeah. No one is speaking German, so it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know? Same thing. Let the wide stick give you the edge. Speed stick, super dry, antiperspirant. Chernobyl. It is time to go around the dial. First stop, Tara Ariano. We, uh, well, I checked out two new Netflix sitcoms this weekend. One of them, Dave, checked out with me. Well, briefly dispense with the first one checked out being the operative word we did check in and checked out immediately (laughs) we watched uh the first episode of tuca and birdie this is from lisa hannah walt who created the character designs for bojack horseman um but i think it doesn't otherwise have any creative uh part on that show i don't think she's a writer on it but anyway this is these uh similar kind of thing anthropomorphized animals these ones are voiced by tiffany haddish and ali wong steven yun also has a a role as ali wong's character's boyfriend uh it's really busy i mean bojack horseman certainly has like lots of jokes crammed into all the corners but this just seemed like loud and relentless it was like that rocco's modern life episode that we watched for the canon oh no where it's just like just shut up and slow down like it was just it was too much maybe this is like this is what the kids like i mean not kids kids but this is what 20 somethings enjoy it was so relentless it was like reading a student essay that had like a parenthetical injection every other sentence yeah it's real busy um and not funny. so we agree <laughs> it's not for us but i also watched uh dead to me this is the sitcom with um well i guess it's a half hour comedy ish uh this is with christina applegate and linda cardellini who meet at a bereavement group and um they're at different stages in their in their uh mourning and sort of form a weird friendship and and are they're both such like 
classic journey woman actors that that this is like it feels right that the two of them are together and and at least early on in the first episode it has kind of a grace and frankie vibe by the end of it they've decided that um judy who's the linda cardellini character is going to move into the guest house of uh jen who's the christine applegate character and you know sort of help support each other through it very grace and frankie but uh at the end of the the premiere we find out there's some secrets that are being kept and that's all i'll say without um spoiling it but it's uh it's good and compelling um linda cardellini uh considering the last thing i saw her in before this was her one terrible scene in stupid endgame i mean endgame was fine she had a very thankless role in it um but she has a moment in the second episode where she's like gets some bad news and is trying to put it off like she's okay. And she gives this, this amazing take of like enormous grin plus panic eyes. Like it's, it's so magnetic and recognizable and awful and great and like funny and well-observed and stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's good. And I like that, um, we're now instead of which golden girl are you or which sex in the city girl are you? It's we're into an era, at least judging by the first episode of this, of which facts of life character are you? Um, and there is some dispute about whether Jen is a Blair or a Joe as she thinks she is. And, you know, Linda Cardellini's Judy is a, is a tootie. Anyway, it's uh, it's interesting. And I'm 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 definitely uh, curious to see where it goes. I've only as I said, I've only watched the first two. But yeah, dead to me. Yes. Tuca and Birdie. No, no, thank you. Um, for my plug, um, I, we haven't really talked about this. Pro the previously .tv boards have moved and are now part of a new site called primetimer.com, which is managing edited by our dear Joe Reed. And I wrote about the most recent episode of Good Girls, the NBC show that I've talked about on here before. Um, so I'll link it in the show notes, but you can check it out there. All right. Next up is Adam Sturberg talking about a uh, local favorite uh, Netflix show. Take it away, Adam. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about Money Heist on Netflix, everyone's favorite Spanish-produced money heist show. Um, <laughs> if you're like me, you often go to Netflix or other streaming services looking for a kind of show and then finding versions of that show and being sort of vaguely disappointed, altered carbon. <laughs> uh but I finally – and I had looked at this show for a long time. I would sort of circled it. Uh, the name of it was a bit off-putting because it's called Money Heist, yeah. um, which is like calling it like Rob Bank. Yep. Um, As opposed uh, to Kitten Heist. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think it was on that aforementioned Script Notes podcast actually. One of their guests, I believe it was uh, Eileen Brosh McKenna from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. They had asked her something about what she's watching, and she said everyone in her writer's room was obsessed with the show Money Heist. So I was like, fine, I'm going to watch the show. Um, it's ridiculous, yep. <laughs> um, but kind of endearing. Uh, the, very briefly, the premise is a bunch of uh, criminals who are like an anonymous group of criminals who are assembled by a criminal mastermind called The Professor. As I said, ridiculous. Uh, take, have this master plan to take over this Spanish mint and um, print all this money and they have all these hostages and then basically like a telenovela breaks out. Um, and as I was watching the first episode, I was simultaneously like, wow, this is every trope of every heist movie in one place. Like everything from the different criminals have code names. They're all named after different cities. So they're called like Berlin and Rio and Nairobi. So you're like, well, we've seen that a million times, but it's also cool to have someone named Berlin. That's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. They all wear like, 
matching coveralls and sort of ironically themed uh, rubber masks. In this case, it's all Salvador Dali masks. So again, you're like, this is literally, I, I would love someone to do a study of the number of real life heists that involved gangs wearing uh, themed rubber masks and compared to how many have appeared in movies. <laughs> and yet they look cool when they're all wearing their weird Salvador Dali mask. You're like, of all the choices you can make, if you're a Spanish produced heist show, this is a pretty cool choice. Um, and so I'm about three or four episodes in. Uh, I, I've enjoyed it enough to keep going. Um, this cast is extraordinarily attractive, which helps. Um, and the show is just twisty and, and kind of um, fun enough to keep going. So I will throw my voice in with the anonymous writers of the craziest <laughs> girlfriend uh, room and say that money heist is worth checking out. We talked about this uh, a couple months ago when I, I had this sort of same discovery process as, as you, as you did. And what I said then, and I, I stick by it, why I like this uh, series at its base level is because when you have a heist show or a heist plot line in a movie, you know, there's the, the screenplay either, you as the audience know what the heist is going to be and it all goes to shit or you don't know what it's going to be and they show you how masterful they are step by step as it happens right and i mean those are sort of the the two modes of a heist screenplay but this one sort of splits the difference and has fun with it some things work out all right some things you know are going to go to shit some things you think went all right actually went to shit and vice versa some things mm. went to shit as planned you find out later so i feel like it keeps you on your toes enough for a heist enterprise that it stays interesting throughout its two season plot line i thought it was like great sort of bubble gummy 70s tinged quentin tarantino fun you know and and they managed to make the heist part interesting in a way that wasn't quite as bad as the scandinavian red herring crime red herrings you know they dial it back a little bit they're just sort of like fun aha moments in this rather than being like inc instead of being incredibly ridiculous they're just ridiculous which is fun <laughs> i do wonder you've probably watched further than i have how if they're going to explain the fact that you know their master plan in season one is that they're going to print all this money in the mint mm -hmm. so they'll have billions of euros and i kept thinking well doesn't the money have serial numbers on it like it seems like that's actually a really bad way to steal money because everyone will know exactly what money you stole. But I'm sure we'll all be explained by Nairobi or Berlin, or <laughs> Denver. I believe there's a character named Denver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, serial numbers do come up. That is addressed. As okay, yeah. good. I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, we have we watched everything that's on Netflix so far, and there's a new season for anyone else who has watched it coming in June. Uh, for my plug, uh, I don't really have anything of my own to plug other than my usual array of entertaining novels that exist out in the world for <laughs> interested readers. Um, but I wanted to plug something uh, that I have not yet seen, but I'm very excited about, which is the TNT show Dare Me, which is based on the novel by Megan Abbott called Dare Me about uh, cheerleaders in high school. Uh, I've been following this very closely because I love that novel. Um, I was very excited to see that they're making a show of it that Megan Abbott is involved in. And they recently released a sort of sizzle reel for TNT's big new upcoming slate of shows. And that TNT's trying to do like a bunch of more sort of edgier, betterer shows. Um, and even just the little clips of it got me very excited because, you know, there's something about like noir and darkness and cheerleaders all thrown in together. I feel like it could be really great. So 
I'm going to be looking out for. Sarah D. Bunting. Um, I finally started watching Atlanta and like I couldn't stop. Like I would just turn the TV up really loud when I had to go to the bathroom and then I would come back in and turn it back down. Uh, it's, uh, and you know, it's one of those shows where you're like, this better be as good as everyone says. And then it is. And you're like, oh my God, why didn't I figure this out sooner? Um, I mean, if you watch, you know what I mean about what it's like, like describing it on an axis of like good and great is not even quite right like i hate the word immersive so i'm not going to use it but it's shot and inhabited so fully like you can almost smell like the pot or when they go out to eat um we all have that friend like vanessa's who thinks she's being sweet and trying to help but <laughs> is zeroing in on every flaw like your mom does and you're like why do i still know this person uh i love that darius is this like weird virgil with the cultural hot takes like the Steve McQueen thing from the first season. Uh, but I think my favorite thing about the show is that there is no other show like it. Mm -hmm. um, like it's often funny, but, and it's around half an hour long. So it's been agreed upon as a comedy, I guess, but it's not quite, it's like completely its own world that is real. And with all the things that are sort of funny about life, but also the things that are really like bleak about life and the things that are both of those things about life. Uh, the second episode scenes in the jail are yeah. like heartbreaking and also perfect. Yeah. Um, I want someone to do a Canon presentation on that. I thought of it. And then the second time I watched it was like, Oh, I'm too white to talk about this. <laughs> like yeah. I'm not going to try someone else. Please do it though. Yeah. I was looking at, um, I was looking in the Canon archives and I was like, how has this not, come up mm -hmm. for the canon um listeners please do it because uh we are we are much too pale for this um it sounds like season three isn't happening this year after all i'm not sure what the deal is hulu i'm watching it on hulu and hulu's like it's back in 2019 and i'm like pretty sure the president of fx said no um but the rest of you still have plenty of time to catch up. I will only be watching this for another like couple of days, unfortunately. And then I'm just going to go back and watch it all again. Have you got to the uh, invisible car part? No. <laughs> okay. That was like one of my favorite moments. That's that a year. really good one, too. Yeah. No, I have not. Yeah, that to um, look forward to. I was just, I think I just... Um, finished episode whatever episode where she basically fires herself is, oh yeah is where i am yeah that's a good one They're um, all good. yeah um so i still have plenty left but i'm already like trying i'm trying to savor them and it's just not working i just keep watching them um for my plug i wrote a review of the act <laughs> um called caught in the act joe reed don't leave my headlines they're always terrible <laughs> Um, but it's about the uh, Hulu series based on the Gypsy Blanchard case. Um, I was positively disposed toward the season overall, but if you would like to read that, it is on primetimer.com. So I wanted to talk very briefly because it is not out yet. It's still a couple of weeks away and is probably under embargo. But uh, Hulu's Catch-22 adaptation from George Clooney's production company, I believe, uh, is coming soon. And... 
So here's my experience with Catch-22. I only knew it as an entry in the English lexicon. I knew it was from a <laughs> book, but I've never read the book. I didn't know what the book was about. Uh, I didn't really know exactly what Catch-22 was in the book. Uh, now I know all those things. So that was like, if nothing else, that was a learning experience. But the <laughs> miniseries was actually very well done. I really enjoyed it. We 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 watched it all in one day. Hulu, May 17th. Yep. Uh, worth checking out. Yeah, they're going to drop all six episodes. It's not going to be the usual Hulu thing where oh, it's good. just once a week. This is all, all of them are dropping on the on Friday, May 17th. Awesome. Um, one thing I will say is there's a surprising amount of overlap between Catch-22 and Chernobyl. In yeah. So far that there's the same instinct to, you know, that sort of uh, fight or flight reaction to taking responsibility for things in mm-hmm. uh, highly structured institutions also exists in Catch-22. And it's very uh, similar to what you get in Chernobyl, even though one, you know, is supposed to be kind of farcical and fictional and one actually happened in real life but so <laughs> there's that um quickly uh this week on our patreon feed in light of his upcoming doc about country music we're pitching future ken burns projects so check that out and i'm going to throw this out there if you and somebody you know have a disagreement about something on television i don't know what that is it could be anything as long as it's about television we will have the people's count decide love it your tv disagreements and we'll let you know who is actually correct for a definitive resolution on your tv disagreements uh, send some information to hello at extrahotgreat.com we'll get it and uh, we'll have the people's count figure that out for you oh my word So today we have uh, an extra credit topic that only a couple of us are going to be able to really participate in because it's about Call the Midwife. And I will have more details in a second. But when I previewed this for Adam and Dave, Adam wanted to get a chance to uh, make some guesses about what the what Call the Midwife is. Adam, take it away. Well, I was reminded we used to do this feature uh, way back on the late lamented uh, website, Fame Tracker. Called the reasonable person and the idea is that you would interview <laughs> mm-hmm. someone who wasn't a pop culture obsessive and yeah. ask them questions about the, the the oscars or something and we'd occasionally ask people about like a universe of a show and so i'm going to be my own reasonable person and try to tell you what i think call the midwife is so for a long time i assumed call the midwife was a reality show of some sort uh-huh. in the vein of like Same. super nanny <laughs> yep and I wasn't exactly sure what it entailed because it was hard to imagine like you're having a baby and then someone's like, call the midwife. And then she like runs through like the Kool-Aid guy through the wall. It's like, I'm here to show you how to really do this. Um, then at some point it was it, it was inferred to me that it's not a reality show or a game show, but some sort of historical drama. But that's all I know about it. So I'm going to guess – that it's like a British show about a midwife in a town, but I'm still kind of at a loss what she does. Cause how often can, how many babies can you deliver? Maybe she's like us. Oh, you know what? Maybe she's like a sort of um, murder. She wrote style character who like shows up and gives people advice about how to be better people and parents. And then occasionally then they're like, Oh my God, the baby's coming. And she's like, 
And they're like, oh, the midwife. And then she comes in. See, when you said that, I thought maybe she specialized only in infant death murder mysteries. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, and I mean, I can't say you're hugely far off because there definitely are lots of uh, dead babies on this show. I mean, not lots, but a, a fair amount. <laughs> Considering what a feel-good show it is normally, a lot of dead babies. Is she like an Angela Lansbury type or like Michael Landon touched by an angel, like shows up to impart wisdom and make people's lives better? Um, (laughs) It's there's more than one midwife. There's a bunch of midwives. They all operate out of a out of a place called Nanata's house, which is um, midwife HQ. Yes, they're they're, there. There's a bunch of nuns, Anglican nuns and a bunch of uh, nurse midwives. And they. The nurse midwives also live in this house, which is owned by this convent. And um, they're like, they're part of the National Health Service, which at the start of the series was new. Now we're into like the mid 60s. So it's old hat. But so they they serve uh, the residents of the east end of London, which is a, a part of the part of the city called Poplar. So it's kind of a hard scrabble area. There are docks nearby. And so people are pregnant and they call the midwife and the midwives go and deliver their babies at their homes. Oh, so it's a little bit like ER, except it's sort of outwardly directed. And there's yes. a lot of bicycling. Yep, they they ride their bikes. Is there like inter-midwife drama? Do there midwives who kind of hate each other or are falling oh, with each other? No, it's very gentle. They they sometimes have disagreements, um, but it's no, no one hates each other. My last question. The expression call the midwife, does, does that come up in the show? Like, what does that refer to? The idea that like, if you're in trouble, you need to call the midwife? Or is it simply just like... No, if you go into labor, someone says, call the midwife, and then they call the house. The midwife came to your flat. Yeah. No, I, I, no, I understand. <laughs> I do know how midwives work. Each episode, somebody <laughs> says, call the midwife, and they beam a big call the midwife signal in the air, <laughs> like the bat signal. Like, do it's they historic. look at the camera and be like, call the midwife? No. Right. No. It is corny, but not like that. No, but, you know, it, there, it's not like in every episode someone actually says it, but... Well, you, you know, had people me go convent. into labor and then a midwife is called. It sounds now, very uh, conventy and gentle. <laughs> to, the, to our topic today, which is rank a midwife. This comes to us from Sean and Tim, who write, Many midwi- midwives who come have come and gone through the East End of London. Lesbian Patsy, Alcoholic Trixie, Sister Can't Drive a Car, Chummy, Sister Monica Joan. Please rank the midwives from worst to first. The first is, of course, the one you would want to be there if you were giving birth. Now, Sarah has been watching the show, but she is behind me. So I'm going to let her go first with the rankings because my list is going to be way longer. Sarah, from worst to first, rank the midwives by your own personal metrics. Okay. Um, Dead last is Jenny Lee. Pouty, annoying, loves to stare into the middle distance, sulking about her married boyfriend, Pasola. Mm-hmm. Um, next to worst is Monica Jones. She's daffy and annoying, but at least she loves to knit. And we could pass the time between contractions by working on difficult cable stitches together. Uh, and she's played by an actress I really like. Um, Bernadette, soothing accent, does too much mooning over Dr. Turner, although at least that works oh. out for her. I'm not quite yes. up to that yet, but I saw I the forgot she list. was Sister Bernadette. Yes. Yes. And it's like, oh, God. Um yeah, even Dan is like, get on with it, British people. Jesus. I'm like, they're British. This is how it's this is how it's done. Also, she's a nun. Calm down. Um, Trixie, I guess is fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know she's alcoholic, Trixie, but you, you gotta have something in common with your midwife, <laughs> right? Yep. Uh Cynthia, no objection, I guess. 
um, Evangelina. Yep. Because she's competent and warm and businesslike. And I think I would enjoy that. Um, And of course, at the top of my list is Chummy, who, as we see, I think in like her very first episode with the triplets and the bike lamp Mm -hmm. makes it work no matter what. And uh, we clumsy high pockets has got to stick together. And that's just how that is. (laughs) Tara. Well, strap in because there's like 50 more midwives since you've <laughs> since the point where you are. So at the end of my list, Sister Winifred, or as Sean and Tim call her, Sister Can't Drive a Car. She's just okay. kind of a drip. Uh, she means well, but she's very annoying and like really not being able to learn how to drive was her big character moment. So that should tell you everything you need to know. Nurse Delia was only is only this low on the list because she was kind of like an adjunct. She's with the St. John's Ambulance. So she's not really a full on midwife, but she is Patsy's girlfriend. So, you know, I, I'll put her above. Can't drive. Um, Sister Frances is only this low because she's new this season. So we haven't gotten a chance to learn very much about her. She's like a brand new nun. And like just as in the episode that's airing next sa- Sunday on PBS gets her first delivery. So, you know. She's too new to really make much judgment about. Nurse Jenny, however, is at the bottom of the list of people that are were at the start of the season for all the reasons you said. She's she's a drip and she also can be really judgmental too. And like I know we're supposed to empathize with her because she's the narrator, but fuck that. I have Sister Monica Joan only above that because she, she, for all the reasons that you said, she she can be annoying in the way that old people can be annoying. Although I will say. In addition to knitting, she also develops a real love of television once they get one at Nanata's house. So I I feel that. Um, Sister Mary Cynthia is who Cynthia becomes. She, uh, spoiler, ends up joining the uh, sisterhood. Yeah, I saw that. Um, So, you know, she's she's kind of a drip, too, although Mm. she gets an interesting um, mental health storyline much later on that you have to look forward to, question mark. I mean, it's not really cheery, but they handle it nicely. Uh, Sister Hilda is also new this season. She's the one who looks uh, exactly like um, Fiona Shaw if she was younger and had really blue eyes. Um, She seems kind of businesslike, but, you know, again, she's new this season. We don't know that much about her. She seems fine. Mother Mildred is the mother of Nanata's house. She's filling in for um, another nurse this season who has had a back injury slash was probably making a movie for a while. And she's played by Miriam Margolias, who is an excellent Hey, It's That Guy. Oh, and, I um, love her. She gets into some trouble early on by uh, suggesting that people have the same kinds of diseases that she's seen on the streets of like, um, I think she said Peking or Hong Kong. And they get really offended that they think she thinks they're dirty. And so she has to learn how to deal with people in the East End who are not well off, but very proud uh nurse lucille was new last season she is from jamaica um she's very very pretty but she also has some religious tendencies she is not anglican i'm pretty sure she's a jehovah's witness or a seventh-day adventist one of those so she has some uh you know relaxing to do in terms of how um tight assy she is uh, above her, I have Nurse Patsy, the aforementioned lesbian Patsy. She is very glamorous, has gorgeous red hair, and also is played by Emerald Fennell, who wrote season two of Killing Eve. So we stand. Nurse Sheila is who Sister Bernadette will become. And she, spoiler, ends up being a very good mother and nurse to Dr. Turner. And, you know, she's, you know, she's she's not really different than what you've seen, except she gets to be married and then she's happy because she's not a virgin nurse anymore. I don't know. 
Nurse Barbara is above her. She comes from a uh, religious background. She had a really cute haircut and um, (laughs) she got to get married, too. And that's all I'll say about her, because I don't want to spoil her storyline for you. I have Sister Evangelina, the uh, World War II veteran driver, uh, bulldozer nun nurse. She's a badass. Nurse Valerie is above her. She has an amazing storyline this season that I also won't spoil. Also, she has great hair and a really cute coat. All of the 1964 fashions of season eight, by the way, are chef's kiss. Oh, my God. Such a feast for the eyes. Uh, Above Val, Nurse Phyllis, who is the one who has a back injury. She's basically like exactly like Sister Evangelina, except not a nun. That's who they replaced her with character profile wise. I have Chummy above her, then Sister Julianne, then Nurse Trixie, which, yes, she is an alcoholic. But by the time of the season eight timeline, she is a recovered alcoholic, super glamorous, real progressive fighter for um, women's rights and women's health. Trixie has a real journey to go on. I'm excited for you to watch it, Sarah, and especially a hair journey. And she always looks great. And that is my list. It's true. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now! It is time for the canon. Submitting this week, Mr. Adam Sternberg. Take it away, Adam. I'm going to submit for your uh, consideration for inclusion in the canon, Barry, Season 1, Episode 7, Loud, Fast, and Keep Going, which will also be my philosophy in doing this presentation. <laughs> um, uh, when, I, when I last submitted a show for the canon, it was um, uh, Killing Eve, and I, I felt like... Um, rather than reach back into the annals of TV and try to find a classic, uh, I would keep going on the subject of the shows happening right now that I think will be remembered as classics. And one of those shows is Barry. I remember when Barry was announced, when the show was announced, I was very excited about it because I loved Bill Hader. I always found him a really interesting performer on Saturday Night Live. He is, by all accounts, a 
pretty interesting, smart guy. Yeah, he once did an excellent reading list in the New York Times. Um, and the sort of high concept idea of the show of a hitman who falls in love with acting and wants to be an actor in L.A. sounded promising. Uh, though I have to admit, I expected the show to be something more along the lines of, like, Get Smart or something kind of a problematic comparison, but like a sort of uh, schmaltzy comedy in which there's a hitman who like joins an improv troupe and every once in a while a bad guy shows up and he has to like pull out a gun and shoot someone and then the actor's like, did you hear a bang? And he's like, what? Um, <laughs> but I thought it would basically be like a Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, writ large about this sort of comic situation. The show has turned out to be much darker and more complicated and more ambitious than all that. And it I have to confess, it took me two or three episodes in season one to really adapt to the tone of the show. I think when I was talking about Killing Eve, I may have said that like the mark of a great show is that it teaches you how to watch it. And I think that's doubly true of Barry. Um, the juxtaposition of sort of very real violence and very high stakes in the show and, and sort of um, viscerally affecting moral conundrums alongside almost sort of slapsticky humor and cartoonish characters is a very, very difficult uh, high wire act to pull off. Uh, but the show really has pulled it off and, and maybe n nowhere in no episode more successfully than, than in this one. Um, I often think when I'm watching Barry that it feels like Bill Hader just binge watched all of Breaking Bad in one weekend and then like charged out of his house and was like, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it in four hours. Um, it feels sometimes like the orange juice concentrate version of Breaking Bad, like it's <laughs> been boiled down to its essence. Um, so a little backstory before we go to episode seven, for those of you, I think everyone knows the premise of the show. Barry is a former Marine and a professional hitman who is initially hired to kill a guy who's, who's an aspiring actor in LA. And he ends up sitting in on the class and sort of falling in love with acting and deciding that acting is going to be his ticket out of this kind of uh, terrible life that he's built for himself, this life of violence and kind of moral compromise. Uh, the acting class is led by this ridiculous uh, actor named Gene Cousineau, who's played by the fantastic Henry Winkler, and it's populated by a bunch of, um, you know, pretty familiar but expertly rendered versions of aspiring actors in L.A., um, including Sally, who's played by Sarah, Sarah Goldberg, who sort of, as the season progresses, becomes Barry's sort of girlfriend. Uh, when episode seven, which is the penultimate episode of season one, opens, we're seeing a scene that we've just witnessed at the end of episode six, which is Barry and a bunch of like ludicrous hoorah Marine friends of his who sort of shanghaied him uh, into this bull rush of this um, Colombian drug lord who he has been contracted to assassinate, but his ridiculous Marine friends have decided they're going to do this sort of face on assault. And the very last shot of episode six is quite haunting. Actually, the car is speeding along and suddenly you just hear like pop, 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 pop. The windshield shatters. There's blood everywhere. And the scene ends. Um, and it's a very realistic depiction of a sort of combat death scenario. Uh, episode seven opens with the same scene, but from a different point of view, from the point of view of the drug runners themselves, they see this SUV charging toward them with this crazy metal music blaring and they kind of shrug and start shooting at the SUV. Two of the guys are killed and Barry and his sort of sad sack Marine friend, Chris, who had no business coming along on this whole escapade in the first place, uh, managed to escape after they uh, shoot up the car, 
we meet Cristobal, who's this Colombian drug lord we've been hearing about, who's been who's been talked about as if he's this kind of crazy cutthroat, but actually turns out to be this genuinely kind of friendly, nice guy. And he then gets on the phone with Goron, who's the Chechen gangster who had uh, hired Barry to kill Cristobal. And we hear the following conversation between Cristobal, Goron, and then there's interjections from Noho Hank, the other Chechen gangster. I hope this aggression isn't just about business. If you wanted in on my stash house, all you have to do was call me. He's angry. I can't tell. You know, I have been a fan of yours for a while. Like when you sent me that bullet via DHL, I was like, wow, this guy, he is next level. Listen, I know how hard it is to break into Los Angeles, but you and I, we should be working together, not against each other. No? What's happening? He is super nice guy. <laughs> we fucked up. <laughs> Uh, just before you continue, uh, uh, correction, he, uh, he's Bolivian, not Colombian. Yes, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for that correction. Um, so, you know, what I love about that whole scene and that conversation is it just gets at the kind of off-kilter character dynamics that Barry is so good at, which is, you know, this ridiculous conversation between these guys um, and this sort of awkward social dynamics in the context of this kind of ongoing drug war and blood and violence and, 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 and chaos. So the other plot line in the episode is that Barry's acting class is planning a night of Shakespeare in a tribute to their fallen classmate, Ryan, who was himself killed by Barry, although no one knows that except Barry. Um, and Barry's scene partner is Sally, who has convinced Cuisineau to let her play the part of Macbeth in a very famous scene from Macbeth in which Barry has one line as a walk-on. And here we hear them rehearsing. And so this sort of uh, gives you an insight into the other part of the show, which is a very incisive satire of sort of L.A. aspiring actor culture. So let's listen to that. I have stopped. Chris, you got to stop calling me, man. I need to talk to you, man. You, you, okay, listen, you, you need to relax and stop I'm calling me. Familiar to my slaughterous thoughts cannot once stop me. Cannot once start me. I gotta go. My queen, the lord, my, my lord, the queen is dead. That's not, I can't, I just, I can't, I'm sorry. I just got lying. Fucking lying! All right, everybody, let's take a tight five. I'm talking a tight five. Nick. So what we hear there is, you know, Sally's terrible, Barry's terrible. If you've ever been anywhere close to an acting class or, or, you know, the, the, the show captures the exact sort of climate of that kind of class, the self-importance of it, the way in which the people involved have this idea that what they're doing has life and death stakes. And of course, the show definitely juxtaposes that environment with the actual life and death, death stakes of what Barry's doing in his other secret life. Um, you know, a little side note to say that obviously this kind of satire of L.A. culture is very uh, – and Hollywood and show business is very familiar. But Barry is so surgical about it and it's so obvious that the people involved in the show are so steeped in this and they really get it and they're affectionate about it because it's yeah. the culture they come out of mm -hmm. um, that I think they really uh, – they earn every laugh and they really, really – there's a pinpoint accuracy to the uh, – drone strikes that they launched that is really impressive. Um, so 
we learn that Barry has managed to escape the shootout alive with his friend Chris, and then he goads his friend Chris into killing uh, one of the the drug gunmen, shooting him in the back, which is a pivotal moment because he needs Chris to do it to save them both, but he's also essentially dragging Chris into sort of the world that he already lives in, which is a kind of uh, orally ambivalent, to say the least, world, and it sets up the major moment that's going to come later in the episode, which is where Chris and Barry are in a car and Barry is essentially trying to convince Chris not to say anything about this and not to go to the police. And Chris is freaking out and saying that he can't possibly live with the guilt and he has to go to the police. And he's essentially having the kind of reaction that I think as a viewer, anyone watching the show is like, I would much more likely be Chris in this situation than Barry. I was going to clip this scene, but it really deserves to be watched in its entirety. It's a pretty long scene, um, but it's really affecting. And I feel like it's probably in of itself, the reason that Bill Hader won an Emmy for acting for the show. Um, it's also grueling and brutal because as the scene goes on, we know inexorably what's going to happen and what Barry has to do, which is what he ultimately does do, which is he murders Chris. He murders his friend, this kind of hapless guy who had a chance not to be involved and, and sort of came along in the spirit of like, yeehaw, we're going to go do this. We're going to have a lot of fun with my Marine friends, but who also has a wife and kid. The show has been very intentional about reinforcing this idea over and over again. You know, a lot of shows, I think they would have made Chris a little bit more <clears throat> repugnant in some way. Um, this scene reminds me of a famous scene in Breaking Bad when Walter White watches Kristen Ritter choke to death on her own vomit. And Vince Gilligan has talked about how – and he does nothing to intercede. And, and Vince Gilligan's talked about how that's sort of the moment when Walter White goes over to the dark side because he's allowing someone to die, someone who's essentially innocent because she's threatening his endeavor. And this scene is kind of like that but times a million because Barry is not just not interceding. He's actually acting to kill his friend. It's extraordinarily affecting. Um, Later, we see Barry uh, riding in the back of an Uber, and he's on his way to the scene study night presentation uh, where Sally's waiting for him to do his part in her scene. And he has this kind of dream sequence of how he thinks the scene is going to go. And in the dream sequence, Sally is terrible. Bill Hader comes on and delivers his one line in the most ludicrous way possible, like right out of a Saturday Night Live sketch. And the best part of that dream sequence is the audience reacts as if they're the two greatest Shakespearean actors in history and that no one's ever seen Macbeth. So he walks on stage. He's like, the queen is dead. And everyone's like, oh. And it's this, And then we cut back to Barry in the cat in the car and he's having these haunting visions of Chris's wife getting the news that Chris is dead and his son getting the news and like really actually affecting moments of this terrible actual tragedy that's happened to these people at, at Barry's hands. And um, it's great because then it sets up what comes next. Barry shows up. He's incredibly distraught. Sally in her sort of narcissistic way is really uh, angry at him for being late. And she's like, give me something to work with. You better deliver. Barry's essentially having a kind of meltdown, uh, reliving this moment of killing Chris of all the, uh, the anguish that he's brought on Chris's family. And then he goes out and he delivers his one line and that we can listen to in the clip. The Lord The queen is dead. And then, of course, this 
spurs the entire audience to sort of sit up. They realize that this is like the best moment of acting they're going to see all night. And it also prompts Sally to deliver the back half of her monologue in an actually very affecting way, which gets the attention of this agent from Gersh, who's so far been sort of ignoring her and looking at his phone. And he suddenly looks up. There's a great visual gag there where he's sitting next to two empty seats that say reserved CAA and reserved (laughs) WME, which if you've ever gone to like a talent night or a a amateur show or anything, there's always these seats that say like reserved New York Times and they just sit empty the whole night. Um, But the kind of genius of this moment is in the the monologue that Sally uh, delivers is this famous Macbeth monologue about life, the the famous monologue about life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So the monologue itself actually frames the entire episode and gives a new context to the entire uh, interaction with Chris and the sort of absurdity of what's just happened. Um, then Barry retreats into the back room and is essentially kind of having a breakdown. And Cuisineau comes in in all his grandeur and he wants to congratulate Barry on his great performance. So that's this clip. Barry! Bravo! I just saw you go to a place tonight I have never seen before. I don't know if you can do it again, but it was a mess. Okay, I see you're still in that place. I'm going to leave you to your process. You know, I have a few notes. They can wait till Monday. Um, And this is also a kind of classic Barry moment because there's an actual genuine uh, emotional moment happening, but then it kind of gets diffused by Henry Winkler having this great reaction to it. Um, And this moment kind of gets at something which is one of the themes of the show, which is the idea of this notion of turning personal emotional pain into art, the extent to which that is a worthwhile calling, um, the extent to which it's just a kind of ridiculous way of staving off our fears of mortality. Um, And it also reinforces this idea that Barry can never really escape the person he is, and that in essence, that person is the one truly special thing about him that by succumbing to the darkest part of him in killing his friend, Chris allowed him to achieve the one thing he wanted to achieve, which is sort of credibly deliver this line, be part of this tribe of actors and have some chance of becoming a different person that he, you know, going forward. So this, as I said, this is the seventh episode, the final episode of the season kind of cements all these themes and then takes them even further. Um, What I love about uh, episode seven into episode eight is that they both reinforce what the show is about, but also vault us forward into a new, darker, more complicated version of the show. Uh, It would have been very easy for this show to just set up the premise and then kind of set it running. But now we have a new Barry to deal with, a Barry who's done something that's sort of inarguably atrocious, uh, repellent and abhorrent. And yet we are still invested in his journey towards trying to become this better version of himself. Uh, Many critics and viewers suggested that the show should have just ended as one perfect eight episode season. But in season two, we've seen these themes return just as complicated and just as interesting. Uh, It was both very hard to choose one episode of season one of Barry and also very easy. And this was the very first one I thought of um, in part because the shootout at the beginning is so affecting 
the scene with Chris in the car, I think, is the sort of most indelible scene of the entire season. Uh, the episode is directed by Alex Berg, who's the co-creator of the show, written by Liz Sarnoff. I think it's got all the sort of um, characteristic strengths of Barry. Um, and it, it serves as kind of the flexion point between the first part of the show and its evolution into something even more ambitious. That is why I believe that episode seven of Barry should be inducted into the canon. So says Adam as the thunderstorm rolls into yes. Austin. So if you hear that, that's what it is. Um, Tara, do you want to take first stab at this? Yeah, I'll go first. First, I, I just want to uh, say you're so right, um, Adam, about the surgical strikes that it takes against the students. Um, I think I mentioned when we talked about the premiere of season two that we had been rewatching season one in preparation. So we, this was still rather fresh in my mind, but I had forgotten a couple of details on this that I noticed on watching for this for for the canon. One is that um, early on, we see the detective who's investigating Ryan's murder and she's she's got headshots of all of the students in the class in this <laughs> conference room. And I and they're so terrible, like they're all the, the dumbest, like most, you know, cliched choices that these that these actors would make, like like they're making just dumb faces. They're just so goofy and like a, a lesser show except for Barry's, which is just his driver's license picture. So a lesser show would like would highlight that more. And but it's such a quick visual joke that like unless you paused on it, you might not even necessarily notice it. But if you go back and watch this episode again, Darcy Cardin's is in particular an excellent, terrible headshot. Um, and similarly, at the showcase, um, we see that there, you know, we don't see all of the, of course, all of the Shakespeare um scenes that have been chosen but we do see that one pair of actors went with a 60s take and there's another one that's like a guys and dolls costuming story and like all of these these ways that like bad actors would choose to make themselves interesting like it's it's it again not highlighted just something you would notice like in the background of you know the main action which is Obviously, the Barry story and why it's so great that it's um, against this Macbeth monologue is not just because it's like the most famous one that we all know and and very, you know, has a lot of resonance for this situation. But because the whole point of Shakespeare's tragedies is always you as a tragic hero had a chance to make the choice that was right but difficult and instead, you pursued your own ends and fucked your life. And that's what happens to Macbeth, where he's, you know, like kills children among many other people and kings and stuff to get to to be king and fulfill what he thinks his destiny is going to be. And similarly, like Chris is basically a child in Barry's world. Like Chris is, you know, like, I, I don't know if he's a sad sack, but he's certainly like a gentle soul relative to Barry and even like these other Marine guys that we see him kind of hanging out with. Um He's so vulnerable, and especially in that scene in the car, like where he's just begging, you know, saying it's the right choice is for him to go to the police and then realizing when Barry says, why did you have to say that? Like, OK, like there's there's an, there's one inevitable way this is going to end for me. And he tries to backpedal. He's he lies that he told his wife that he was going to see Barry, like to try and scare Barry out of killing him. And, you know, he's not going to go to the cops. But of course, we know like he can't he can't unring the bell. And so the the tragedy of Barry is that he he could have made a different choice at many other many points in the in the season. This is obviously the biggest climax to this point, um, but also that the the life that he's trying to actuate for himself is not to be 
the King of Scotland like Macbeth, but to be an accepted member of this awful rundown shitty acting class <laughs> like the scale of his ambitions and hopes and dreams is like so tatty um that it makes the the sacrifice of chris's life to that end like that much more tragic in all senses of the word so yeah there's a lot going on in this episode it's an a, excellent presentation it was um it it's always great to watch the show and this was for sure a standout of season one so great job dave I think this is a good choice uh, for Barry so early in its life. I think it hits on all the major themes of the show as you presented. Uh, my one knock against this episode, and this is a personal thing, and I don't think this is a particular show failing, but it is something that I just dislike. And I think my dislike of it started with my uh, ingestion of Star Trek The Next Generation back in the day, which I watched every week. <laughs> and about every fifth or sixth week, there would be something where Jean-Luc Picard goes on some fucking Shakespearean lesson about this and that. Shakespearean shorthand, let's say, about where an episode is going. And a lot of writers do it. Obviously, you know, they're timeless stories told forever. But still, every time I get a Shakespearean sing-along episode, mm. part of me kind of goes, uh, uh. Um, that said, it's used to pretty good effect in this episode. If I could somehow rework this episode without having to do the Macbeth thing, would I do it personally? Yes. Does it make it a lesser episode for the universe? No. This is my hang up. I just want to put that out there. Um, lots of little things to like in this episode they didn't mention. One that I really like, and it's not just this episode, um, is that... Even with mobsters, mobsters have to learn on the job. Therefore, <laughs> there will be mobsters in the profession like Gorn and Hank that don't know what they're doing yet and have very little experience to fall back on. And that whole phone call between Cristobal and Gorin, where he's kind of realizing that he uh, that Gorin acted too fast, acted too hastily, and he's really put his whole situation in America at risk is just such a moment where you realize you're over you're over your head like you some holy shit you somehow bullshit your way into your first job out of high school and but <laughs> now you're at the you know you're at the office and somebody's asked you to you know start working at a spreadsheet and you really lied about how well you can use excel which was very little and suddenly you like you're up shit's creek i mean i really like that about this cuz usually the mobsters are all, you know you already you get them when they're the tough guys, right? You know, and when and they're seasoned. So that part of it of Barry season one, I really enjoy, especially because we get Hank as part of that package. And Hank is like one of the fantastic revelations of the past oh, couple God, of years. So funny in TV. The very tone and language of Goran and Cristobal's going to war chat is uh, part and parcel what I was talking about. But there's a certain businessman to businessman tone to it, or sort of like. Um, in shows where two lawyers argue in court, but then like kind of talk shop in the hallway afterwards and the tone is different. There's human qualities to these characters, especially when Cristobal is going on about his uh, self-help book revelations during this sort of declaration <laughs> of war. And he's giving advice that he should, uh, that Gorin should, you know, look this up. It is a very helpful tool, but uh, we're going to kill you. Um, I really enjoyed that part of it. Adam, what did you think about the, is it the latest episode or season, maybe it's two weeks ago now, the uh, the Taekwondo episode? The bottle episode? Yeah. Um, well, 
we're not talking about that episode. I have to say I was not as enthusiastic about it as some people. Okay. I had seen some stuff about it in advance saying, oh, it's the greatest episode of the series so far. I mean, it was a real uh, risk. Um, I, I found, you know, I talked a little bit about how I felt like this show tonally takes a little while for you to like get up to speed. Yep. And I felt like this tonally was like it was shifting into a different gear again. And so I felt a little bit like I I wasn't quite in sync with it. Um, t- t- you know, about two-thirds of the way through, I was like, oh, this is going to turn out to be a dream or something. <laughs> and anytime you're thinking that, like something's gone a little bit wrong mm-hmm. between you and the show. Uh, so that was sort of my impression of it. Okay. Um, I only mentioned that because it is an episode I really did enjoy. And I just wanted to say, like, when it came up, I kind of said, like, this is that is an episode that I like to put up for the canon at some point. I really enjoyed how off kilter it was. I felt it worked within the framework of it. But uh, I just wanted to get your take on that, because I do think your choice is more representative of Barry as a whole. Yeah, like this, this sure. that episode that I'm talking about was unique in the run of Barry so far. It was very entertaining. I thought it was very well done and it was very surprising but a bit of an outlier to the series as a whole. So um, I just wanted to mention that as a compliment to your choice here. I I will just say in addition that, I mean, really the only thing that kind of put me off in that episode was the little girl fighting and like the wire fighting shots of her. She was so weirdly proficient. And then when she bit um, Fuchs cheek, there was just a couple of moments where I felt like it went beyond the sort of established boundaries Mm -hmm. of, realism slash surrealism that the yep. show kind of had established and i found those a little bit jarring yeah i i usually don't have a problem with elastic reality in tv shows so i'm more forgiving of that kind of thing but i, I holy shit i totally get where you're coming from <laughs> that's All that's right. the sky telling you to turn it over to sarah thank you um i don't have a whole lot to add i don't watch this show regularly um it's on my list um it definitely moved up the list after uh, watching this episode. Um, this is a show that obviously loves actors, but in the way that you love family members, which is to say that you're very good at pointing out the things that are annoying <laughs> about them. Um, reader, I married one. So, uh, let me just say that these pre-show vocalizations that they're doing <laughs> and many of the other things that you guys mentioned, just that are sort of like these little perfectly, um, like long-term observed things about these actors, like the headshots and like it, perfect. I just thought that was great. Like they're so, they're so happy. Um, they have such hope and they're so annoying. <laughs> yep. And like that, it comes from such a place of fondness. Um, and I, I think that's what I found striking about this show. It's sort of like universal fondness for everyone in it, even if they were behaving horribly and, you know, or murderously or combatively or ridiculously, um, that there was this loving care taken with it. Uh, I absolutely see Dave's point as a veteran of teen dramas, the, um, (laughs) literature used to parallel protagonist feeling uh trope is some bullshit but i thought this was a really effective subversion and i would love someone to do just like an oral history of that sequence um for or her that actress i don't remember her name sarah goldberg is that yep okay 
um, just like the, the things that she's realizing that she's sort of really hearing the words for the first time and understanding what they mean. It's really a difficult thing for an actor to portray an actor learning to act during a fucking Shakespearean monologue. Like (laughs) they should give Emmys for single scenes. They don't, but if they did, she'd be first in line. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really quite an affecting episode. The way his flashbacks or not even flashbacks, like flash theories of the, of Chris's wife getting the news, like the way that was edited was really perfect. Like this is really a um, smart show that is okay. Kind of holding a bunch of emotions in the scene at one time mm-hmm. and, tr- and does trust you to learn how to watch it. So I'm excited to continue with it. And um, yeah, thanks for making me watch my very first episode. I, I really liked it. Excellent. All right. Let's put this to an official vote. Tara Ariana. Yay. Sarah D. Bundy. Yay. And I'll say yay too. So that means. Barry, season one, episode seven, chapter seven, loud, fast, and keep going. You are hereby inducted into the extra. Hot great cannon. Americans love a winner. Yeah. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. It's time for winner and loser of the week. Tara has our winner. The winner is Elizabeth Banks, who gets to pick up the world's easiest paycheck as the host (laughs) of ABC's Press Your Luck revival, which is coming this summer. Um, Why? Why is this happening? Why is this show taking place? Like, I know that these must do super duper well. Uh, I don't know anyone who watches it, uh, any of these shows, but they like this block must be a powerhouse. And I assume they also cost three dollars to make because it's like this and match game and everything else. And like, you know, not that I think she'll do bad at this. And I do think that she like has a natural funny talent as well. Um, Certainly she can't be any worse than Alec Baldwin, our match game host. Uh, but it is weird to me that this is where we are in network television at this stage in history that like in some ways, you know, and we've dinged them for this last week with the red line and how how, um, you know, rote it is. But like that ABC is like, eh, let's just throw an hour of of weekly primetime programming to this. I don't know. I don't have much more to say about it, but congratulations to Elizabeth Banks, who's going to be making that sweet dough. Uh, Sarah, you have the loser, and I'm going to throw it to you because Dave is uh, away from his desk. Please proceed. Okay. Um, There were a bunch of um, felonious prospects, but obviously we had to give it to um, the multi-form Game of Thrones team, starting with the set decorator who left a takeout coffee cup on a table in a scene that aired. (laughs) followed by the numerous other people on set who failed to clock it, including the camera operator. And well, and the editor after the fact who did not paint over it either, which has subsequently happened. Yes, which has subsequently happened. Um, all the people on Twitter who freaked out about it um, when people were like making funny memes about it, all the people who were like, does this seem like a, you know, is this a joke to you? Like it's a fucking TV show at the end of the <laughs> yeah. day with fucking dragons in it. All y'all step away. Uh, And finally, HBO went to the trouble of sending out an email to its press contact list with the following nerdy joke. 
In response to inquiries from those who saw Craft Services Coffee Cup in Sunday night's episode of Game of Thrones, HBO states the latte that appears in the episode was a mistake. Daenerys had ordered an herbal tea. Uh. What? <laughs> That's not even a joke. Shut up, brands. And shut up, brand. And shut up, brand. Also. Uh, speaking about things and people that should shut up, do you know what time it is? It's game time. All right, everybody, this is the third game time of the season. Standings currently are valued guests, one point. Tara? Yes. <laughs> one point. <laughs> And Sarah, zero points. Today we are playing from yours truly. Oh, you grow, but you love it. All right, today we are playing <laughs> hot true. potato. In today's round of hot potato, I will challenge your knowledge of some of TV's most prolific creators and producers over five exciting rounds. Oh, boy. Uh, steel meals don't count this week. Well, there'll be no equalizers. So let's get right into who is going first. We will start with valued guest. Are we ready to play? Yes. The answer is yes. Round one. Out of a possible 16 things, we'll do the hot potato, starting with Adam, then moving to Sarah, and then to Tara. Your first category is Stephen J. Cannell shows not canceled in the first season. There are 16 possibilities. Not canceled. Okay, our first stop for Stephen J. Cannell shows that made it into a second season at least is Adam Sternberg. What is your first salvo? Manimal. Correct. Oh, <laughs> potatoed. Uh, sorry, that was made by, I believe, the same guy, people that did Battlestar Galactica. The, oh, the okay. The Bolisario, Bal or whatever his name is. Uh, to Sarah. Okay. Murder, she wrote? All right. Tara, <laughs> you got to get, you need one for a point. Hunter? And yep, that's how you do it. Here's the other ones, I guys. Know her. Sarah D. Bunting missed 21 Drum Street. Oh, no. The A-Team. We have Beretta, oh. Black Sheep Squadron slash Baba Blacksley. The Commish, Greatest American Hero, Hardcastle and McCormick. Hunter, as mentioned, Renegade, Riptide, The Rockford Files, a little something called Sunny Spoon, question mark. <laughs> Stingray, Street Justice, Toma, and Wise Guy for all of you. Some of the great theme songs in that list. All right, Tara gets the first point. Relatively easily. Round two, 25 possibilities. Spelling television shows not canceled in the first season. These are shows produced by Spelling Television. Tara uh, won, so we're back to Adam for round two. Beverly Hills 90211. <laughs> no, oh. Not Correct. familiar. Sarah. Melrose Plots. You are correct. Charmed. Malibu PD. Malibu PD. <laughs> Sarah. The Love Boat. 
Charlie's Angels. Vegas? Fantasy Island. Oh, not canceled after one season. Shit. My mind has emptied of shows. Chips? Chips is not one. Okay, Tara, you want to do another one just for shits and giggles? Ooh, Dynasty. Yeah, Dynasty and the Colbys. Seventh Heaven, Burke's Law. Oh! Family, Heart to Heart and Heartbeat, Hotel. And uh, on a technicality, Love Boat, The Next Wave, managed to get two seasons. Matt Houston, The Mod Squad, The Rookies, Savannah, Starsky and Hutch, Summerland, Sunset Beach, SWAT, and finally T.J. Hooker. Hooker. Hot Potato continues, starting with Adam. 19 shows created or produced by one of the lost trio of J.J. Abrams, Carlton Coos, oh boy, and <laughs> Damon Lindelof. Point of point of order. Uh, shows in development that are like announced or scheduled are those count. Uh, those count. Okay. Yes. Carlton Coos, oh boy, and <laughs> Damon I'm Lindelof. I can't say lost. All right, then I will say the leftovers. Count. Yes. Oh, sorry, Felicity. Alias. Bates Motel. <laughs> nice. <sighs> Supernatural? There's a strain. Watchmen. Oh, shit. Oh, oh! That's a big one still up there. I know it's the one with Barry Watson. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, ah! I'm out. <laughs> uh, any more from you, Adam? That you know? Oh, um, Lindelof. Uh, um, no, I don't know. Yeah, that's fine. You still got the point. But wait, Here's- what was the show about the people who patrolled the beach on bicycles? It was like a Baywatch ripoff show. Are we are we backtracking or is this something is this something from JJ Abrams that I missed? Pacific Blue? Pacific Blue. Yes. Was that Aaron Spelling? No. No. Not on this list at all. I'll give you that little uh hint. Uh on the lost tip, Castle Rock from JJ Abrams. Oh, Colony yeah. from Carlton. Uh Crossing Jordan from uh Damon. One big show we all missed, Fringe. Oh, sorry, buddies. Uh, some others. Jack Ryan, Lock and Key is upcoming. Martial Law, Nash Bridges. Person of Interest, The Returned Revolution. What about Brian and Westworld? Westworld. What about, what about Brian? That was the very All right. So that means we're on to round four. Adam got that point, so we're starting with Sarah. 13 Chuck Lorre shows that lasted more than one season. Sorry, 11, not 13. All right, starting with Sarah. Two and one half men. 
Uh, Mom. Big Bang Theory. Young Sherlock? <clears throat> Young Sheldon? That's what it. <laughs> Mike and Molly. Was he anger management? <clears throat> Shit! All right, Adam. Uh, you got the point. But for chits and giggles, do you know any more? I counting six more. One huge one still on the board. Uh, two and a half men. Oh, wait, wasn't he... he, did he was he on Roseanne? Uh, he did that weed potato. show on Netflix, too, that I can't remember what it's called. With uh, that, Kathy Bates. I don't think that survived one season. Uh, Sybil, oh. Dharma and Greg, Grace Under Sybil. Fire, Kaminsky Method, and My Two Dads. He was a supervisor. Oh, my, two my Two Dads. Grapes. All right, job, that Adam. means Tara has two. Adam has two as we go into our fifth round of All right, Adam got that. So we're starting with Sarah again. 16 shows created by Stephen Boschko or Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> Stephen Boschko oh, or either. Shonda Rhimes that lasted more than one season. Sarah, you're first. L.A. Law. L.A. Law. Right. Oh, uh, murder in the first. Sorry. How to commit? How to get? No, I'm not going to say that one because I don't know the exact title. I'm going to. Uh, 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 NYPD Blue. <laughs> how to get away with murder? Um, scandal. Ray's Anatomy. Oh, it's more than one season, right? Yep. Yeah. Shit. I know what you're thinking of. <laughs> I know you I know. know what you're thinking of. <gasps> I'm the baby merchant. Uh, okay. Scan. <laughs> uh, shit. Let's see. I, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven shows. Oh, gosh. Eleven still left? Um, uh... uh my mind is now emptied of botchko terial. Was he moonlighting? Let's try that. Mm. Hate this fucking game. Um, he was not. Station Station I'm, Nineteen. Station Nineteen. I feel like there's got to be another Shonda Rhimes show that I am not thinking of. Uh, what I got for you is Hill Street Blues. What I got for you is a ding ding. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> the catch. Two seasons. <laughs> Uh, I'm just gonna say it so that it gets it goes into the the Senate uh, record, even though I know it didn't last two seasons. A cop rock. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, Tari, do you know anymore? No, I'm out. Yeah, you're getting. Uh, I think maybe the biggest one left. Two biggest ones left. Doogie Hauser. Oh yeah, right. And probably Private Practice. Uh, rounding those oh, out. Right. Civil oh, Wars. Yeah, thing. For the yeah. people. Pooperman. Oh, murder uh, one, murder two, murder <laughs> three. No, uh, off the map and raising the bar. All right, that is round five. Oh. Final scores, please, Star. All right, uh, Adam, Sarah uh, did not get on the board. Adam had two. I have three. All right, so Tara, you win the day. I do have a tiebreaker round, which will now play for the gift of two steel meals to be used Ooh. in the future. All okay. right. 
So we've yes. talked about people that made shows. This round is talking about TV shows about making TV shows. These oh. are TV shows that are about making TV shows. So Tara won the last round. So we'll go to Adam for our first show about making TV shows. I also feel obliged to read this one into the official record. A Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> God damn you. <laughs> 30 Rock. Correct. Uh, sports Night. The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Yeah. Uh, Morphe Brown. Episodes. The Newsroom. <gasps> Extras. Yeah, I'll count it. There was TV in it. There's TV and movie stuff, but I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be generous there. But yes. <sighs> Good morning, Miami. Oh wow. Um, um, making a TV show. Yeah, the one about you know Malibu PD TV. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of still big ones in there, and a lot of ones that I bet you've watched too. Some real critical darlings left here. Um, you're giving me a second chance. Um, I don't know. Adam's out. Gross point. Nice. Great news. Oh, is it me again? Yeah. Uh, uh I mean, oh, I uh, I don't know Benson. I'm out. All right, Tara gets the steel meals. Any others you can think of, Tara? I only had one more, which was the Larry Sanders show. Yeah, the Larry Sanders oh, right. show, and also oh, the Gary yes. Sandling show, kind of maybe. Mm, um, yeah. Here's one that uh, sneaks up on you. Glow. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Good night, Bean Town. Home sure. improvement. Uh, the hour. Oh yeah. I'm Alan Partridge at all. Larry Sanders show, less than perfect, Muppet show, uh, on oh. the air. I would count SCTV, yeah. Unreal, Up All uh. Night, and a show I've never heard of, but I love its title. Wednesday, nine thirty, eight thirty Central. Oh, I remember. That. <laughs> I remember that show. All Such right, a well done, idea. Tara. <laughs> That is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. Our core discussion this week was HBO's miniseries Chernobyl, but we didn't oh, reach critical Dave. mass until we went around the dial where Tara went nuclear on Tuca and Birdie, Adam went on a money heist, Sarah took us to Atlanta, and Dave suggested you catch Catch-22. Tara and Sarah ranked the midwives of Call the Midwife for Sean and Tim. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and Tara was the winner of this week's Hot Potato Game Time. Remember, we're listening. I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Ariano, the Queen, <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting, many of which are terrific, and Adam Sternberg. It's 12,000, Ronkin. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. Well, that was something. Huh? Equal parts, loud and raw. <laughs>
This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. What is a panic attack? You might get to see a hedgehog. I'm the world's first IVF baby. What a wonderful time to be alive. We're landing on the moon. <laughs> Every week our podcast covers cutting edge news, great stories and hands-on science. Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Subscribe to The Naked Scientists on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the US and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.